Before we read uh, from this passage, which will be familiar to many people, uh, let me ask us a question. Have you ever had that experience where you get to the end of, of something that you're doing or something you've made and you realize that you're finished, but you're not quite finished? That uh, the, the meal that you prepared is out of the oven and sitting in front of you is now in your mouth and you realize, I left out my salt. Or the baking powder, shoot, the cake didn't rise. Like, whatever it is, it's not quite done. Uh, maybe if you're a student, or many of you have been students, you finish the homework set, and you go to class the next day, and the teacher's working through it, and you realize that you did some of it, but you forgot about the extra problem at the end, that, that you finished the work, but there's still work to be done. Uh, maybe it's when you go on vacation, right? That, that dream vacation you had planned for this summer or last summer. You get to the end and there's that gnawing sense of, ah, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Or we needed just another day or two to really make it great. A couple uh, summers ago, actually a number of summers ago when I was growing up, um, I used to play golf uh, when I had time and money to play golf, but kids. So um, I was on vacation with my family in Colorado and had gone out one morning to play golf at a golf course near where we were staying. And I got out there early because we were trying, I was trying to get around the course so I could go back and join the rest of my family for the afternoon. And as I got to what I thought was my last hole, um, I realized, actually it was the last hole, but what I realized is that somewhere along the way I had, I had missed a turn on the cart path and I ended up skipping about four or five holes. So I was getting up on the 18th green, which I thought was about the 13th hole, and I'm seeing the clubhouse, and I'm seeing the driving range, and I'm realizing, like, I'm finished. <laughs> there are no more holes to play, but I wasn't really finished. There was a, a gnawing sense of, I paid for more than that. There's work still to be done. In this passage that we're going to read this morning, uh, it contains the Magna Carta of the Christian life. It is the gospel in a nutshell. It's John 3.16. It's the most famous passage, arguably, in all of the Bible. And rightly so. Um, it is a succinct picture of God's work in the world and what it is that He came to do in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in some very, very, very important ways, I think the Christian church and you and we as part of that church have, have gotten it right. That we understand John 3.16 and we get that it means that Jesus came to save the world. We get that right. And that's important because right before this passage, Jesus had been having an interaction with a guy named Nicodemus, who is a ruler of the Pharisees. And Nicodemus was acknowledging Jesus as a teacher. And he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. And Jesus kind of enters into this dialogue to correct Nicodemus in a, in a way, is to say... Nicodemus, you don't get it. I, I'm more than a teacher. I'm a Savior. And I came, and you must be born again. And so, for those of us who believe that, who really do buy into the message that Jesus was more than a teacher, but He's our Savior, the question that I want us to kind of mull over this morning as we look at this passage is this one. Why is it that so often in the Christian life, so often in this process of following Jesus, why is it that we feel like 
It feels like there's more here. Kind of like I did on the 18th hole. Or that you did with that bite of food or that homework set or that vacation. Why is it that there's that kind of low-level sense of, I just, mm, I feel like there's got to be something else. And what I want to suggest this morning is the heart of this passage, which is at the heart of the gospel, is that Jesus is more than a teacher, and he's not less. And he's more than a savior, though he's certainly not less. Jesus is also a lover. He's a lover. And I think that is hard for us to believe. I think it's easier for us to to believe the propositional statements of the gospel, the truths of the gospel, which are necessary and important. I think for many of us it's easier for us to believe those than it is to receive the love of Christ. And to see what it is that that might mean for us. And so here's it, here it is. What is there to know about Jesus' love, to realize, to, to get about His love that starts to transform us at a deep level? It starts to satisfy those longings of our heart which, which long for more, which long for change, which long for lasting and meaningful impact. I don't know if you'll normally do this, but I'd ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word if you're able. If you're not, that's fine. Um, we're going to stand and give deference to God and His Word. John three sixteen through 21. You could probably recite this one together, uh, the first part anyway, but here we go. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You may be seated. Thank you. Before we jump right in, let me just state the obvious here. This morning we're going to be talking about the love of Jesus and what that does to us and in us. But if you'll look at the passage, or maybe if you'll kind of realize, the passage itself doesn't say that Jesus loves anything or anyone. It says that God so loves the world. So let me make that quick transition to really kind of getting at why it is that we can assume that Jesus actually is a lover as well. John, in the first chapter of this Gospel... He has already made that case for us. He has said that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He goes on a little bit later and says, and that Word put on flesh and dwelt among us. He makes the connection that Jesus Christ, He is this eternal Logos, this divine Word. He is God. And so right here in John 3.16, when we read that for God so loved the world, we can and, and should and need to, to, to rightly assume that if God loves the world, that Jesus also loves the world. Friends, Jesus is more than this obedient Son 
who just receives orders from his father. He is an obedient son who receives orders from his father. But Jesus is the eternal son of God who loves the world that he willingly entered into. Jesus is a lover. He loves us. He loves this place. So what about that? First, his love is powerful. His love is powerful. And that's what we're going to see this morning. Firstly, verse 17, it says that just kind of this idea that Jesus came into the world. That God so loved the world. That Jesus so loved this world. That he willingly entered into it. Let's just pause there for a second. Um, We get amazed when when we think about astronauts going from... Uh, from earth to outer space. And we've even seen the videos or the movies about that, that entering in back into the world and its atmosphere. And it's, it's turbulent and their faces are you know, paced against the, against the chair. And it's amazing. It's like, ah, and it's so intense. How much more when God, who's existed from all time and space as a spirit, as a Trinitarian being, says, I am going to enter into the world. I'm going to put on that flesh. It is cosmic in its scope. It's powerful. It's a love that sought to endure extreme humiliation to come for its salvation. We see more, though, in verses 17 and 18 as this unfolds. Jesus starts to talk about this world that that He loved and was going to enter into And he starts talking about the darkness and the light and and how the world is already condemned. And he's saying that he came as the light to enter into that world in its darkness. Uh, Think about this. If you've ever, uh, if you have kids, if you've ever been around kids or or worked with kids, if you've ever uh, done the watercolors, you know, you get that little palette of tin paints and it's so inviting and the colors are so bright and all you need is water and a paintbrush and a flimsy piece of paper that's going to get saturated. You know, but uh, you take those watercolors and you give them to kids and you put them out in another room. Friends, what's true is that the longer the kids are in there, the darker that picture is getting. That picture is moving from colors to brown and black every time. That cup of water with all of its mixed up, it's moving in one direction for darkness. Jesus is saying, look, I didn't come to tell the world that it was condemned. It was already condemned. The darkness was the given. That's what's there. I came to pull the colors back out. I came to bring beauty into that darkness. I came to bring light, to break into it, to reorient it, to restore it into what it was meant to be. It's a powerful love. It's a beautiful love. So that's kind of a heady picture of it. What does this look like in real life? What what did Jesus' love look like in concrete reality? Well, we see it throughout the Gospels. I'll draw our attention to one account in John 13. In John 13, Jesus is with His disciples the night before He's betrayed. He's gathering with them in the upper room, which is a fancy way of saying the garage apartment. It's nothing special. Uh, He's up there with them. He borrowed it from a friend. And as they sit around the table, Jesus does this. We read that when his, uh, he knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, and having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end and to the uttermost. And so we kind of naturally think that a picture of Jesus loving his people to the uttermost 
means he's going to stand up and teach them something. What does he do? He puts on the towel and he gets the wash basin of water and he goes around and starts washing their feet. His powerful love leads him to do the least powerful thing. He starts serving them. He, he puts off his, if we could say it like that, he puts off his godness in its stature, in its power, and he becomes a servant. But friends, in that very act, he is showing the deepest nature of who God is. In no way is he putting off his godness. He is most fully embodying what God is like in that moment. It's a powerful love that washes his disciples' feet. And if we think that he does that just because it's part of the deal that he made with God the Father, then we will never understand why Jesus came. We will never understand why Jesus died. Jesus loves us. The ultimate power is the foot washing power. The ultimate love is the self-denying love. In 1990, uh, there was a seminary, uh, sorry, a university professor uh, president. His name was Robertson McQuilkin. Robertson McQuilkin was uh, president of Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina. It's not a huge school, it's not a big university, but it was growing and it was doing really well and they were attracting all kinds of new students and adding new programs and it was really on the way up. And right in the middle of that, he is in the, he's in demands as a speaker. Uh, people want him to do this and to lead this. And right into the middle of all of that positive trajectory, uh, Dr. McQuilkin's wife progressed in her illness. She had Parkinson's disease. And, and it was a very besetting, uh, is a very besetting illness, and it was very much so in her life. And right into the middle of that, he steps down from his post as university president. And he explained to some of the faculty members and students why that was, and then he put it into a letter and has since been uh, easy fodder for pastors ever since. And he said this, uh, Recently it has become apparent that Muriel is contented most of the time that she is with me and almost none of the time that I'm away from her. And it's not just that she's discontent, she's filled with fear, even terror, that she has lost me and always goes in search of me when I leave home. So it's clear to me now that she needs me full time. This decision was made, in a way, 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So as I've mentioned to some of the students and faculty, as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it. But so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her for the next 40 years, I would not be out of her debt. Duty, however, can seem grim and stoic. But there's more. I love Muriel. She's a delight to me. Her childlike presence and confidence in me and her warm love and those occasional flashes of the wit that I used to relish so, her happy spirit and her tough resilience in the face of continual distressing frustration, I don't have to care for her. I get to. It's a high honor to care for the woman I love. Do you know that's what Jesus says about you? He's not 
in His life, in His death, in His resurrection, in His ascension, in His reigning. He is not up there saying, I had to do it. It's the deal we made. He gets to you. And friends, when we get that, it begins to work in us. And we, we think, this is a love that I've never known before. This is powerful. This changes me. If God loves me that way, if He loves us that way, then that changes everything. And that's what the Gospel claims to do. To change everything about us. So it's a powerful, transformative love, yes, but, but it's also a purposeful love. How does it change everything about us? Well, it, this passage talks about it. Uh, what was the purpose of the life, death, resurrection? If I were to ask you that, if I were to ask this room, and I would say probably all churches, why did Jesus come? He came to save us from our sins. Is that true? In unison, we nod. Yes, it is true. It absolutely is true. He came to die for our sins. And I think that the way, the very fact that we answer that way shows that transaction is our default mindset when we think of the gospel. We think of the mechanics of it. That he came and he died on the cross. That means substitutionary atonement, penal substitution. God's wrath is appeased and we get heaven. He get, right? It's like this. It's like uh, if there were a stage and there were actors on the stage, we tend to think that the main actors are those very things, the, the theological concepts which are true and which are right, and, and that love is like the spotlight that serves to highlight those things. And I think Jesus is saying it's the opposite. I think he's saying that, that those things, the necessary, uh, the necessary movements of the gospel and the necessary theology which makes it happen and play out in real time and space that, that cause the redemption of the world that those things are the spotlight shining on love. Because look, if God doesn't love the world, those things don't go into place. That those things serve to highlight the love of God the Father, Son, and Spirit for this world and for His people. Where do we see that in this passage? And let me say this before we look at that. That love, the purpose of it is to reorient our loves. That the purpose of God's love is to come in and start changing what it is that we love, what it is that we desire. Now let's look at the passage. Verses 18 and 19. He looks and he goes from talking about um, John 3.16, 17 and the works of, of salvation to talking about these people's works. And he's talking about evil works and he's talking about good works. And Jesus, are you, are you talking about works, salvation or what's happening? Here's what he's saying. What we do tells on what we love. Our actions evidence what it is that we love in our heart. Verse 19, people love the darkness rather than the light. How do we know that? I just looked at their life. They did things that were evil. They love darkness. They do evil, dark things. And the converse is true a little bit further on. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Our actions flow from our desires. The things we do flow from the things that we love. 
It's always that way. And Jesus came to change the things that we love by his love. Jim Gaffigan understands this. Uh, A few years ago, in his uh, comedy tour called Mr. Universe, he talks about McDonald's. And uh, if you've seen it, you're laughing. Um, It's it's amazing. You can YouTube it. Um, He talks about McDonald's, and he says, you know, the thing about McDonald's is that we know it's terrible for us. Like, it's ads advertised. They're not trying to be a farmer's market. Um, It's like, I'm getting a burger and fries and all the additives and chemicals, I just know. I'm doing it. But they hook us by the sales. Two Big Macs for $2? I've got to have 80, right? Um, and he talks about it. He's like, but, you know, maybe McDonald's isn't your thing. Maybe you're a little more highbrow than that. He said, but it's all McDonald's. Maybe it's Us Weekly. That's McDonald's, he says. Um, maybe it's Frappuccino. You tell yourself that it's not a milkshake, but it is. Maybe it's the TV show that you watch that you think is more sophisticated than, than it is. And, you know, you kind of convince yourself, he says, that's McDonald's too. We know we shouldn't, but we do because we love it. A couple years ago, last fall, last year, uh, I was seeing my counselor. And I was, you know, you kind of, if you've ever done counseling, you check in. You kind of wander through the stuff of life. And then he or she just gets on something, and that's what you end up talking about for the next 45 minutes. And uh, so I would say, yeah, you know, like, life's pretty good. Uh, life and kids, we're all doing well. I, I do feel a little bit distant from them. Bzz, laser beam. Uh, what, why is that? What are, you, what are you doing with your time? Oh, oh, yeah, we're in the middle of a house remodel, and so when I get home from work, I usually do that. And on the weekends, I, I usually do that. And, he, he kind of lets me talk, as counselors do. And then he just says, well, Brent, it seems to me that uh, you do the things that you love. And if you say you love your wife and kids, but all your time is being spent over here, what that actually tells me is maybe you don't love your wife and kids the way you say you do. Here's $150. Thank you. That felt great. <laughs> So, where is your life telling on you? Uh, What about your budget? What does that say about what you love? Now, what about your credit card statement? What does that say about what you love? Where's McDonald's and that baby? What about your free time? What gets your free time? What gets your the free space in your mind? What are you daydreaming about? That's what you love. What do you get angry about when you don't get it? That's what you love. Where does your life contradict your official theology? Our official theology says, I trust Jesus, I believe Him, and yet our fingernails tell the truth. We don't. We're worried about everything and everyone that's possible. Your Instagram feed says, I have a great marriage, have a great family, and yet one evening in your bedroom or in your home would say otherwise. Our life tells on us, and Jesus came, Jesus came to reorient that stuff.
And his love enters into this world and it enters into our hearts and says, I, can't, I love you too much to leave that stuff alone. I'm going to mess with you. I'm going to start to change it and undo it. So are there any signs of Jesus' love changing what you love? Are there any tangible signs? And I'm not saying it's going to be cataclysmic, these, these huge movements in your life all the time. Usually and often it's bit by bit. It's loving that thing a little bit less every day so that my love can grow for something else bit by bit every day. And I actually think that in order to answer that question, how is my life changing? You know, how do I know if I'm loving the right things more and the wrong things less? I think that's a really hard thing to do on our own. We need others around us because here's what's true. Uh, Some of us are very gracious with ourselves, and we give ourselves a pass all day long. Like, no, I'm fine. I I do love my wife and kids, right? Uh, Some of us, though, are the opposite of that spectrum. We are terrible to ourselves. We are so self-critical, and we are so ungracious with ourselves that we we could never see the tulip if it was coming up right in the flower pot that we're holding. We just aren't going to see it. So here's what I suggest. We need people around us. We need to ask others to help us answer that question. Hey, do you see anything in my life that's changing? Do you see God at work in here in any way? Help me. Don't ask your boyfriend or girlfriend. They won't tell you the truth. Uh, Ask someone who has nothing to gain from So This love is powerful. This love is, is purposeful. Finally, this love makes us into a people. It makes us into a people who are shaped and conformed around and to this love. Um, return with me back to that scene in John chapter 13 in the garage apartment. Jesus has finished washing his disciples' feet. He's getting up for the, from the floor. And uh, we maybe expect him to stand up and say, ah, you know, there, now that I got that out of the way, we're on to the important part of the evening. If you'll open up your Bibles and turn to, let me teach you something. Here's what he says. As I have done this to you, you should now do it for one another. As I've done this for you, you should now do it for one another. In the same manner with which I love you, in which I love you, you now go and do likewise. The power and purpose of the cross and the power and purpose of God loving the world and Jesus loving the world and willingly entering into it finds its fulfillment in the foot-washing and fruit-bearing ministry of His people. The meaning of the cross, the meaning of, of Jesus coming into the world, its terminus is in the people as we begin to be transformed and move out in love for one another and for the world. In Jesus' mind, John 3.16 never had at its end goal a personal transformation of relationship. Does it do that? Absolutely. But friends, if it stops there, it has not reached its full fruit-bearing mission. Jesus came to save a people. He says things like this, Father, I came to get all of those whom you've given me. 
All those whom you give me will never be cast out. Your sheep will hear your voice. Jesus has intention in his mind that he is coming to redeem and rescue the people for his own purposes. The love that enters the world didn't just come to give us eternal life one day. It came to bring that eternal life into our hearts today. That full, fruitful, powerful, peaceful love isn't just something that we're going to see one day, Sunday. It comes into our hearts today and begins to break out from our hearts and lives today. That's what Jesus came to do. It replicates itself. Right before the upper room, he says in John 12, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So guess what? Jesus was the grain of wheat and He died. And when He died, in a sense, He sends the Holy Spirit that begins to bear much fruit in the lives of His people. So as we are filled by the Holy Spirit, we then become the self-replicating gene that Jesus sought to instill in us. We become a people of His love. And as we move out into each other's lives and into the lives of people in the world, we, we willingly die. That's what Christianity is about. Cheer up. You've signed up to die to yourself so that others can live. Sounds like Jesus. It seems attractive. In practice, more difficult. Let me close with this. Last weekend, uh, my wife and I and a friend, we went to uh, Pahuska, Oklahoma, which none of you know, nor should you. Uh, Pahuska, Oklahoma, however, is the home of the Pioneer Woman. You still don't know what that means. Um, Pioneer Woman is to Oklahoma what John Besh is to New Orleans, right? She's our cook. (laughs) She's our chef. And uh, in Pahuska, she has been wildly successful, made a cookbook that has sold probably hundreds, but it feels like millions, and uh, people are driving from hours to come and see her restaurant, to be at her restaurant, she now has a mercantile and sells all the stuff that's really expensive, and uh, so we went as moths to a flame, you know, we're going, uh, and we pull up thinking we were about to have lunch there. (laughs) It was Saturday, it was 70 degrees, and there were a few others who had that idea, and there was a line, we asked them, how long is that line, now that we know we're not going to stand in it? Uh, that's, it's two to two and a half hours. Okay. So we walked around the mercantile a little bit and bought something, and, um, and then left and went to a diner. Okay. Story, collide. Why would people go stand two or two and a half hours to go eat something that they could make at home? Because... As these people got to know her through her recipes and through her TV show and through her blog, they began to love her. And they would drive and they would spend money. They would spend a whole Saturday standing in line because the pioneer woman has gotten into them. Jesus came to get into us. He came to love us so deeply, and he came to, to put his imprint on us and to begin to, to change us and to enter into our interactions and our lives and our relationships and our vocations and the way we do all this so that we 
will want to not only be with him, but to invite our friends, just like people that do to the Pioneer Woman. Hey, she makes great food. She sells overpriced stuff. Let's go. Awesome. Hey, God loves you. And he loves you so much that he entered into this world to save you. Have you ever known a love like that? Look at the way it's changed me. Look at the way it's changing me. Look at the way it's reorienting my life. Come. Come and see this. Come and taste it. It's the love of Jesus for you, for his people. He invites you into it. Please pray with me. Father, we do uh, we ask that you would come stir our hearts and our affections for you. And we recognize that that will only happen if we understand that your heart and your affections were stirred for us. So do that thing that only you can do, and that is convince us of what is true. Not just in our minds, but in our hearts. Not just in our hearts, but let it flow out into our lives. For your glory, for our good, for the good of the world. We pray and ask in Jesus' name, amen.